Hi, I'm James Bray. And I'm Anne-Marie Ingtuff Larson. And this is the World Economic Forum's podcast, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. So there's that famous quote by Winston Churchill, democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. Actually, it's not his. He was just quoting someone else. And frankly, people recited quite a lot. Maybe a bit too much. For some time now, people in the West have tended to assume that this was pretty much settled truth, that democracy works best. It's just kind of obvious, right? Well, it turns out not so much. That belief does seem to be eroding. In recent years, in lots of countries with pretty mature democracies, the numbers suggest that people, especially young people, are beginning to wonder whether democracy is really the way to go. One study out of Harvard showed that only 30% of millennials in the United States think that living in a democracy is essential. For people born in the 30s, that figure is way higher, more like 72%. And this trend repeats all over the West. In Sweden, Australia, Britain and others, they all tell the same story. For some reason, with younger people in democracy, they're just not as into it. The question is why? Well, it's hard to say exactly. It might be because the economic success story de nos jours is being written by a country, China, that has opted for a non-democratic model. And China isn't the only country in the world that actually seems to be doing a good job of improving its citizens' lives without the ballot box. But you do hear other explanations. This is one of those areas where millennials come in for a bit of stick. People say that they take democracy for granted, that they're too lazy to participate, and they're secret authoritarians. Just don't say any of that to Pia Mancini. I think that's utterly unfair and, and, and true. We, we do want to participate. It, it is a generation that more than anything believes in mission-driven um, networks, in mission-driven um, work. Pia, she is a democracy activist who has founded multiple organizations aimed at digitizing the processes of self-governance. Understandably, she has a different diagnosis for the problems afflicting Western democracy. So just think about the ways you have to to really participate and, and, and have a seat at the table, right? You either have to start doing party politics from a young age and start sort of going up the ladder and maybe one day you'll have a seat at the table or you need to, uh, in Argentina, for example, public hearings are on, on a Tuesday at 11 o'clock and you need to go to Congress. <laughs> in the United States, you vote on a Tuesday. That's insane, on a Tuesday, like in regular working hours. So that's part of the problem. The, our political system was built over 200 years ago, um, and it was designed for an information technology that has been completely overtaken. It was designed by the printing press. When it was designed, it made sense that only a few made decisions in the name of the many, because the many couldn't fit in a room. The many couldn't travel to where the decisions were being made, and also the many weren't educated, uh, mostly. That changed radically. The situation that we have right now, society as it is right now, has been transformed profoundly by new communication technology and that enables us to communicate in a far 
better, more efficient and daily way. And so we are essentially being 21st century citizens and we are trying to deal with uh, 19th century design institutions. I think that's the core of the problems that we are seeing uh, in Western democracy. So the consequences of this is that citizens either find that the existing channels to communicate with the powers that be are, are inefficient, are poor, are very limited. And so they take on the streets, we'll find alternative ways of, of making our voices heard. Or it produces a lot of silence in the system, produces a lot of apathy, produces a lot of uh, disenchantment, lack of trust, lack of engagement and participation. Pia isn't alone. She's part of a whole generation of tech-literate democracy activists who would like to update the operating systems of politics. They make the point that new technologies have revolutionised so many aspects of our lives, but the basic conduct of democracy today doesn't look very different from what our grandparents would have been familiar with. And before we get too indignant about that, it's maybe worth reflecting on why it might not be such a bad thing. I think the bigger danger here is that when you get politics wrong, people die. I mean, politics is genuinely a question of life and death in many cases, and we don't want to make mistakes. And for that reason alone, I think, and especially in a place like the UK, you know, we've always had an incredibly gradualist kind of mentality and instinct when it comes to changing our kind of democratic and parliamentary nature. We prefer to stick with a system that we know works rather than try for something which which might not. That's Carl Miller, author of a forthcoming book about digital power. As he says, when it comes to governance, the stakes for disruption, to use the terminology of the startup world, are pretty high. It's one thing to revolutionise e-commerce, quite another to revolutionise government. Well, yeah, that's actually a revolution. Right, yeah. Uh, on the other hand, that democratic malaise isn't going away. It's getting worse. Despite the kind of recent kind of surges in engagement and membership, um, there are many things which have been locked in a kind of long 50, 60 year decline. Membership in political parties, um, turnout in elections, attendance, uh, hosting events and other kind of political forms of engagement. They've all, these have all been declining in a really marked and startling way since the 1950s. And that really does, um, I think, suggest that entirely new forms of political engagement on top of rather than, I think, replacing the forms that we already have is going to be necessary, really, in order to engage, you know, and reach a electorate that spends more and more of their times online and more and more of their lives using technology. I think it's inevitable that democracy will undergo some profound changes in the next five and ten years, let alone 30. But I think there's a kind of bigger risk as well, which is that unless we get this right and unless democracy does actually begin to evolve and unless democracy can become quicker than it currently is, there's a risk that, that politics itself becomes undermined. I mean, many people see tech and politics at the moment as in a kind of race with each other for, for, for influence over, over, over all of our lives. And I really don't want politics to lose that race. And if you look at the kind of like technologies and if you look at some of the companies um, who are building those technologies, in many ways they are kind of undermining kind of national governments. They're undermining current regulatory procedures. One of the reasons for it, I think, is that they simply don't think the politics can keep up with the technologies that they're producing. Democracy's got to get quicker. And if it doesn't start, start using technology in order to try and help it to do that, then I think that's the greatest risk. It will be undermined itself. Carl is not alone in this view. As mentioned, there are literally hundreds of people out there already trying to use technology to grease the wheels of our rusting democratic locomotive. 
Nice. Thanks. There are experiments in all sorts of stuff. Digitizing voting, crowdsourcing policy, opening up government data, participatory budgeting, you name it. Beth Nowick, she runs the Governance Lab, which literally exists to figure out how advances in tech and science can improve governance. So she has seen more of these experiments than most. What does she think of a post-Fourth Industrial Revolution democracy might look like? So I think what we're going to see is a couple of things. First, we're going to see if we, the trend and movement towards greater transparency and the opening up of government data continues as it has already begun and accelerated today, we're going to see much greater transparency and the openness of data, but above all then the ability of institutions to make use of that data to change how we govern. Hopefully we're gonna see a trend towards and the expectation of much more evidence-based decision-making where government is both a collector and a user of data in new ways to ensure that we deliver services more fairly, more equitably and more effectively than we do today. There are also, though, the technologies of collective intelligence, what we think of perhaps as communication and collaboration tools. Again, today we see lots of examples of crowdsourcing, sometimes called open innovation, or the uses of new civic technologies to help give voice to public engagement, but also to enable people to collaborate and co-create and work on solutions together. I think what we're going to see, hopefully, in the next 20 years is institutions that are much more conversational, that do a much better job of actually using technology to leverage that collective know-how, expertise, passion, and ability of people to work together to solve problems. Okay, there really are a lot of good examples we could have used, but if you want to see what this looks like in practice, you can just take a look at Taiwan. Taiwan's government has a minister called Audrey Tang. Her story is pretty amazing. My role in the government is called Digital Minister with a Portfolio, meaning that I don't oversee any particular ministry, but work across ministry on cross-ministry communications mostly. My role is pretty varied. Tang has been able to experiment with multiple approaches to using technology to govern in a more inclusive way. The most talked about example so far was how she dealt with a giant tech company that has been a regulatory issue for a lot of governments, Uber. She built a system to allow all stakeholders to quickly scope the issues, source solutions, and find a rough consensus on which to regulate. It really takes the political will at a national level that want to make this a prime example of effective crowdsourcing in order for this to happen. They also said in the hackathon, the minister at the time said, we have no idea how to run this, so you're going to come up with the process. We agreed to bring all the ministers on board if you can come up with the process. And that's the political will. We introduced the focused conversation methods. An important thing about that is this process is pre-agreed by other stakeholders, including the taxi companies, the association of drivers, Uber itself, as well as potential competitors, the co-ops, whatever. The process is basically four stages. It's about the collection and publication of all the facts and data that are relevant to this case. And then a way to automatically gather people's reflections and sentiments about the same data. And then a way for people to come up with ideas, ideation with possible solutions. And the ones that are ranked highest are the ones that take care of most people's feelings. And finally, the ratification of the suggested solution. On the deliberation, we started with collective fact-finding, and it eventually evolved into this real-time board thing that you've just seen. 
We did a crude version at the time using shared bookmarks and directories. Still, it's very useful because people are able to see that there are collective facts. And then we run a three-week online sentiment gathering for the feelings part. We present people with facts and ask them for a few yes or no questions. We ask all the different ministries to provide with us one question that they care most, like the Minister of Finance would want to ask about insurance, and Minister of Transportation would want to ask about requiring a professional driver's license, and so on. And people can answer yes or no on one of those random questions. And once they answer, two things happen. First, their avatar moves on this two-dimensional component map, and the second thing is that they see another question in the same place, and they will keep pressing yes or no, yes or no, and their position moves. As the position moves, they also see their Facebook and Twitter friends on real time, all on the same map. It removes the antagonism because they see, although people initially have just clustered in the four corners, like literally four different sides, they still. In each corner are their friends of theirs, so they are not really faceless enemies. They're reasonable people. It's just you didn't talk about this policy issue over dinner. And the other thing is that positions can change because after answering a few questions, maybe you want to chime in yourself, and your sentiments become other people's voting topics. And as people deliberate on each other's opinions, we see that they cluster to the center by proposing more and more resonating sentiments. And based on that consensus, we run live consultation, live streamed and transcribed in real time. That has the stakeholders basically checking in with people's consensus. Like the majority of people think professional driver's license is required. What do you think about it? And so on. Of the seven or so rough consensus items, we also get the people's involved on the meeting to commit and support. They know if they don't show up, they will be seen as essentially villains in this story. So everybody showed up. Everybody looks like heroes then, because they all agree with the sentiments people have agreed over the course of three weeks, and they're very nuanced as well. And now, after we get everybody's commitment, we can now say, "Okay, now we ratify this commitment into legalese, as long as this is accurately represent the things that people have committed to. They can't really take back their words." And then it was ratified. Knowing that everybody would be on board, everybody is on board, and Uber is actually good with that. A large part of this is that we're okay with lobbying, but all of this lobbying is radically transparent and even 360 recorded. And all the stakeholders get to see every other stakeholder's points, even if they come to visit me personally. So this increases trust over time instead of decreases trust over time. By the end of this, Uber agreed to play by the new rules. They only apply professional driver licenses. Also, the existing taxi companies get to make their Uber alternatives, and they are now competing on the same legal frameworks and so on. So it's a happy ending, I guess, and that's the story. It's regulating, but not as we know it. It's hard without visuals to get across the precise mechanics of an approach like this, but the principles are clear. Do away with closed doors and top-down direction for something more open, more transparent. More trusting and more evolutionary. Central to this idea is the idea of iterations or iterative development. The idea is like in Wikipedia: you publish and then you edit. It was the other way around. In many crowdfunding sites, you first get paid and then you do the work. It was the other way around. 
And so all this idea is about release early, release often. It's okay to have some rough policy out, and then we co-create, or we have a sandbox, and then we experiment together for six months. And after six months, we promise to go back and look at the sandbox data, looking at the evidence, and say, okay, we just need to adjust the policy in whichever way. This iterative process itself rebuilds trust. Rather than a particular wise decision at any given point, that's the main idea. We have rough consensus, and it's just try something out, go back, and iteratively refine it. Again and again, digital innovators are showing what can be achieved when government uses technology to loosen the reins a little. So there is a general view that people are, frankly, not very bright, that they're stupid, that they can't name the three branches of government in the United States, that they couldn't tell you who is the um, chief justice of the Supreme Court, that they couldn't name some basic fact about politics or about governing. But I think what all of that goes to show and what it misunderstands is that you don't have to know a lot about the sport of politics to know something about healthcare, about transportation, about traffic, about uh, food, about all of the many topics that we work on when we govern. And that expertise and experience, that passion and know-how could be brought to bear to better solve and inform how we tackle problems if only we had institutions that knew how to make use of that collective intelligence. And if only we had institutions that knew and had people in them who had the capacity to know how to use data and how to ask data-driven questions to actually solve hard problems. So, for example, in Brazil, they enacted new legislation around healthy school lunches. And then uh, a civil society group put mobile phones and a platform into the hands of school children to say, let's go ahead and actually photograph those school lunches and see how healthy, in fact, they are and whether, in fact, the legislation is leading to the outcomes that were desired. I'm conscious that we've talked for 20 minutes about updating democracy without really mentioning voting, which is probably the first thing most people would talk about if you ask them to define what democracy is. Again, there are plenty of initiatives out there looking at digitizing the voting process itself, either to make it more direct or more secure, more inclusive or more regular. Some of these have been more successful than others. For instance, when the UK's Natural Environment Research Council decided to choose the name of its new £200 million Arctic research vessel by online poll, it found itself faced with a spontaneous outpouring of support for Boaty McBoatface, in the end, they opted for credibility over legitimacy and quietly sidelined the suggestion. Nonetheless, the initiatives continue. The South Australian government recently allocated $40 million for citizens to essentially spend themselves by voting on their priorities. There are dozens of these initiatives. But for a truly radical vision, let's go back to Pierre Mancini. Pierre doesn't so much want to improve the workings of the nation-state as replace it. So the way representation works right now is I delegate my voting power, my decision-making, I outsource it to a group of, of, of professional citizens based on where I'm living at or where I was born. In a liquid democracy system for a global democracy, I can choose different people for different topics for different periods of time without thinking or without having to take into consideration where I'm living at or where they are living at. That's where I would like, that's the boundaries that I would like to push. She is currently working on Democracy Earth, whose aim is, as they put it, a borderless peer-to-peer -peer democracy. In some ways, it is an old dream that, say, Jen Lennon would have understood well, a world without borders and countries. 
but new technology has given it a new lease of life. It blows my mind that I am represented by Argentina in um, international issues. That Argentina represents me in climate change talks, I find it utterly absurd. I don't live in Argentina, I was born there. Why can't I pick Costa Rica, for example, to represent me, that they have a much more progressive energy policy? Or why can't I choose a network of um, cities, organizations, people that have a much like that have values and an understanding of where we should go that is more aligned with the ones that I have. So a global democracy enabled by technology would allow me to choose my representatives based on topic, regardless of where they are or where I am in the world. Um, and I think that is extremely possible. So what I'd like to see is what, what we call, what it's called a liquid democracy, where representation is not vertical. And also I think that a large part of the problem with my generation has to do with the fact that a lot of, um, and this is a generalization, but I think that a lot of people perceive themselves, themselves as a global constituency. And the way our democracies are organized are based on the territory as the sort of the vector that legitimizes power, right? We are represented by people that um, based on where we were born or where we happen to be living at. Um, and so Western democracies are absolutely unable to deal with the demands of global constituencies that are not territorialized. Cryptocurrencies have challenged the nation state's monopoly on printing money, essentially. Um, so now having a currency is no longer an, ac an accident of birth, right? If you are like I am from a country like Argentina or Venezuela, and you are forced to leave, uh, make a living in a currency that, who, that um, continuously devaluates and whose monetary policies is absolutely unpredictable and out of your control. Um, to being able to choose another currency, like any any cryptocurrency, like Bitcoin, is extremely liberating. Of course, what is liberating to some may be terrifying to others. And if you ask Carl Miller, this is only one of the more benign challenges the state faces from new technologies. I think what what one one direct threat um, is actually one. A conventional one which we understand quite well which is the threat that any massive concentration of influence and power and money has on any democratic regime so what tech the tech world has basically created are um winner take all success stories in every kind of vertical of technology like there's a weird tendency in technology towards create monopoly or duopoly or oligopoly so rather than um politics engaging and trying to deal with a whole marketplace full of lots of companies, it has to deal with a handful of the largest companies that have ever existed in the world. Companies whose annual turnover now looks much like a GDP, who exist and have markets in pretty much every country in the world, and um, have tremendous capacity to lobby and to influence the political process, and like any other company in the world, are doing that. 
So this is, you know, a, a problem which um, politics has dealt with before. Um, but it's certainly here again, you know, the revolving door of tech companies into government and from government back into the tech companies, um, lobbying might. And um, when it wants to, the capacity of these com uh, companies to basically, as I said, like defy jurisdictional dic diktat in what they're doing, often offering either services or products which um, kind of collapse geographical boundaries and so kind of make the relevance of, of, of politics that is based on those geographical boundaries um, like diminished. I don't think we've got anywhere close to having a conversation about what monopoly looks like in a digital age, in, including an age full of data, of network effects and winner-take-all outcomes. We probably need to start dealing with tech monopolies in a different way to dealing with them either as um, these like public-minded utility companies, which they're not, or as just simply profit-seeking commercial entities like any other company that exists. Because when you own pretty much yourself a, a kind of a, the most important public space where political debate happens, I'm not sure you can treat a company like that either. As will be a theme in this series, the only thing we can be fairly sure of about democracy in the fourth industrial revolution is that it's going to change a lot. The optimistic scenarios sound pretty good. More open and transparent institutions using technology to take advantage of the full depth and breadth of human expertise rather than relying on the small pool of knowledge inside their doors. Lawmakers and regulators permanently informed of the full range of sentiment on any issue, co-creating a rulebook that is more inclusive, legitimate, nuanced and responsive than ever before. An engaged electorate, comfortable representing itself, and the idea of government by the people, of the people, for the people, reinvigorated. But nothing can be taken for granted. As younger generations fall out of love with democracy, technology is having malign effects as well, exacerbating filter bubbles and division, increasing forms of propaganda and misinformation, and concentrating power in the hands of a new techno-oligarchy. The question is, will democracy even be around after the fourth industrial revolution? Or will we outsource our government to a cabinet of algorithms? For an optimistic note to finish, we turn to David Benetti, an innovator and entrepreneur who, amongst other things, developed Votison, a social network for engaged voters as well as for the U.S. government's web portal, USA.gov. So has technology ruined democracy? So I think it's clear that democracy is under disruption. But I think it's premature to conclude that that's a bad thing or a good thing, frankly. All disruption means is that we have a new variability in the process. The range of what was possible is now much greater than it was before because of the technology innovation. And so that can be used for bad and it could also be used for good. So I think it's wrong to say, well, some people are doing bad things with this, therefore we have to shut down the tools. Um, you know, I think that misses the point. Um, a lot of the challenges that we're facing uh, are going to require creative solutions. And frankly, a lot of the reasons why the disruption is happening is because people are losing faith that the old methods are going to solve the problems that we have, particularly since they haven't seemed to solve them over the last 50 years. So uh, I think if we uh, realize that, that these shifts take some time and that they need uh, a process to shake out as we become adjusted to this uh, new reality, uh, ultimately, I think we're going to keep the things that work. We're going to dump the things that don't, and it will help us come up with new and better solutions to the challenges we're facing. And, uh, and that gives me a lot of hope. You've been listening to Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution 
with me, James Bray. And me, Anne-Marie Ingtuff Larson. Join us for the next episode, where we'll ask whether the fourth industrial revolution can be inclusive or whether its benefits will be captured by a powerful minority. And if you want to know more about this topic, check out the World Economic Forum's new book, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. The book is designed to give you clarity to how all these exciting new technologies impact all aspects of society and empower you to engage personally in this unfolding revolution. You can buy the book on Amazon. 